0: It shows, of course, the futility of life without God. The difficulties that we face and where we need to go and what we need to do and ends up by saying we better fear God and keep His commandments and serve Him because that's the only answer. Anything else is futile. It's vain. It's temporary. It will not last. And having finished that... uh, I think we realize here, having been called out of the world and given the precious knowledge of God's plan and purpose for mankind, and what our goals and purposes here are, are here on this earth at this time of the end that we are now in, uh, we have to consider God, and that is the important thing for us to have on our minds. Ecclesiastes very much underlined that, and. The conditions that we see now happening in the world uh, underscore it as well. We are getting almost to panic mode uh, in this country in many respects because of the threat of North Korea and the concerns about Russia and China and and, uh, the Middle East and the Muslim difficulties. And all that is going on in the world is pointing to some soon-to-be-occurring events, and it appears to be very soon at this point. So God tells us in the Scriptures in several different places that anyone who is put in the position of a watchman uh, to see these things, to be sure and let people know, to proclaim it, to publish it, to let it be known, And then, if people do not take heed, it is on their head, not on his. But if he does not do these things, then it will be on his head, and he will have to answer for that blood. So, I feel very uh, strongly that the things that God has revealed to us are very, very important in an understanding of the Scripture that we have that we did not have some years ago, is very important for us. So we have to consider very deeply what God is saying. Now, as, a, as an overview, I'm going to go over a summary of some things that we have, not doctrinally, but prophetically come to understand over the last 21 years, when it first began to be revealed, so that it brings us down to the point we are today and what is about to happen, and into some specifics that seem to be getting clearer and clearer as time goes on, having to do even with um, some of us sitting right here. Now, as you well know, and most of you responded to originally, uh, the minor prophets go through and show, when you understand it, what would happen to the church first, because God deals with spiritual Israel, then he deals with physical Israel. So there is a dual message there, which I think we've all come to see very clearly, that it applied first to the church in a spiritual manner, that the church would come apart and face God's wrath and would be destroyed. We have seen that happen in our lifetimes, and now we are on the cusp of it occurring uh, to our physical nation. Now when I first began to teach this, we could see it happening to the church, and we've seen it continue to happen and get worse and worse. We could also see ominous signs that this country was nearing the end of its empire, if you will, and destruction would come at some point. But we are much, much closer to that physical destruction now than we were 21 years ago. Uh, we're getting very close. <clears throat> so the minor prophets go through and show a progression, like chapters in a book, of uh, how God would bring this about, how the trouble would come. Then it shows the destruction, and then ends. Uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, it shows how God will deal with it and how he will bring it to an end, and it will be positive at the end of the story. Now, if we go back to the book of Isaiah as well, uh, he begins that book with a brief overview, if you will, of what he is going to talk about, like an introduction to a speech And he talks there about the sins in the land and how terrible it is and how there is no manhood anymore. But uh, we're ruled over by women and children. And that is the state of the nation or the nations of Israel uh, today, if you will. (coughs) He talked about the crimes in the land and how uh, there had been liars and then there would be murderers there in chapter 1. He shows... A 90% destruction, chapter 6, he shows how one-tenth would be saved out of it, and this goes along with the minor prophets, showing that 90% of the church uh, would be destroyed, and the 10% remnant would then come to build the temple and build Jerusalem and do the end-time work. So, uh, those scriptures go all the way back to the beginnings of Isaiah, then he shows how Ephraim will be destroyed there in Isaiah 7. And uh, once the destruction comes, and he tells us not to fear those destroyers, but to fear him, uh, how he will begin to bless uh, his people, the church first, uh, even in the days of the end time work with the two witnesses and the remnant who come. And then, of course, on a physical level, that would extend to uh, the nations of Israel in the millennium as both a spiritual and a physical blessing at that time. But even the physical blessings along with the spiritual will come back to the church here as an example to the rest of the world that God is God and that he can bless because they don't believe it. They don't believe he's God and they don't believe he can bless. So he's going to show the world that that can and will be done and he's going to use the church as the example of that, the 10% remnant that come. Uh, He goes through uh, in the middle part of Isaiah and shows the various uh, types of destruction that will come upon various peoples. And then in the 30s, he gets into the precise story of Herbert Armstrong uh, through Hezekiah and how Hezekiah would be essentially a righteous king, but then how he would show all of the treasures that he had to... Babylon and the world around him, which Herbert Armstrong did, and even invited Babylon into the auditorium and various things uh, to let them be involved in uh, God's church uh, on that level. And God did not approve of that. Then Hezekiah had a health issue, and God gave him an extended period of time, 15 years, uh, in which he would live. And we know Herbert Armstrong had a heart attack and almost died, and then his life was extended for some years. Now, it was not exactly 15 years as it was with Hezekiah. And as a note there, let's understand that as we go through these prophecies, God gave an original fulfillment, and sometimes the days, the years, were exact. Now, events will be similar in the end-time fulfillments, but they will not be, generally speaking, exact types. I believe God has done that for a very important reason. If they were exact, then it would be too easy and so very obvious for people to tie this together in the Old Testament with the New Testament fulfillment. Had Herbert Armstrong lived exactly after his heart attack the same amount of time Hezekiah would have, wouldn't it have become so much easier to see the fulfillment of the prophecy than if it's close but not quite exactly the same? So God is giving you a story in the Old Testament. But everything does not have to fit precisely and be fulfilled in the exact same way. Hezekiah did not show the heathen what he had in the exact same way that Herbert Armstrong showed the world what he had. So it is not a, let's say, every jot and every tittle prophecy exactly the same. Everything that happened to John the Baptist did not happen exactly in the same way that it happened to Christ. He, did not, he was a forerunner of Christ, but Christ never lost his head. <laughs> uh, Christ went through things that John the Baptist didn't, and yet there was a very close uh, analogy between the two. John the Baptist being born six months ahead, and then his work being essentially finished, he had to be diminished and Christ had to become greater. So there was a similarity in the pattern, but a pattern does not have to be in that sense exact. So we need to understand that if we are to truly understand prophecy and the things that are going, have been happening and will continue to happen. So Herbert Armstrong did have an extension to his life. Then it shows that uh, because of some of the things that he did, God was somewhat displeased. And he says, well, you'll have peace in your time. And Herbert Armstrong was pretty much, in his mind, content with that. But then in chapter 39, it shows that his sons would become eunuchs in Babylon. Now, hasn't the church, once Herbert Armstrong died, gone into confusion, a lot of it back into Babylon... And that which has remained somewhat at least faithful, has been utterly powerless, like a eunuch. It can't reproduce itself. So they've tried to reproduce worldwide in the work of Herbert Armstrong, and they couldn't do it. Some are still clinging to the idea that he was the Elijah to come, and they still believe that 30 years later, and it hasn't happened. And The end hasn't come, and the gospel still has not been preached around the world as a witness. Nor have those scriptures been fulfilled there in Isaiah 44 and 45, which says that certain things will happen and cause everybody from the east to the west to know that he is God. Nor have the two witnesses preached and gone against the world and shown them who God is. There are quite a few different things that God says will happen that prove He is God. The book of Ezekiel goes over and over it, says it over and over time after time, and they shall know that I am God. Now, if Herbert Armstrong was Ezekiel witness, why has that not yet occurred? The world still does not know who God is. They do not have a clue who God is. Okay? So Herbert Armstrong died, Isaiah 39, same as Ezekiel, and a new work was begun in Isaiah 40, a voice crying in the wilderness, and what was he to say? That all flesh is as grass and will wither and die and be burned up. So it's the beginning of saying what is happening both to the church and to the world. Then Isaiah goes through in the next three or four chapters and shows that his people, his church, at the end, will be his witnesses that he is God. 44 and 45, 44 says that their sins of his people will be wiped out like a cloud. He will hear them, and then he will show his treasures and his knowledge and his understanding, uh, which will come to light in Isaiah 45, and show from the east to the west, that he is God. Then he goes on uh, to show how he is going to begin to bless his remnant church in 52, 3, 4, 55 of Isaiah, and do the same thing that Christ says he will do there in Zechariah too. So uh, then it morphs into Christ returning by the end of Isaiah and the millennium being set up. So Isaiah has to do with the end time at the beginning of the work of the first temple spoken of by Haggai and Zechariah and how Herbert Armstrong would die and then a new voice would come that would proclaim these things and ultimately uh, the story and the prophecy shows the two will come and preach that gospel and when they die uh, it all ends three and a half days later in the resurrection. Herbert Armstrong and Ted Armstrong preached what they preached, where they preached it, and when they died, the tribulation had not occurred, and three and a half years later, uh, Christ didn't return. And in fact, Herbert Armstrong and Ted Armstrong didn't even die at the same time in a war with the beast. (laughs) You know, when, when do we give up some of our old ideas that we learned in... Uh, worldwide Church of God 40, 50 years ago that did not transpire in the way that we thought it would. Now, does that mean that worldwide was a wrong organism? No, it was the first temple. But that which is to come has to supersede it uh, and be better spiritually and in God's use much more powerful than it was. So you have to recognize what God is doing, and what Isaiah foretold and what has actually happened in the church. And we are kind of in Isaiah 41:42 right now, is where we are in the progression of Isaiah. Then you go to Jeremiah, and he also lays out an introduction to his message uh, in the first few chapters, and he even introduces Anatoph there. Uh, not too far from the beginning, uh, chapter 11, about how there will be a rebellion there and how the rebels will be taken care of by God uh, before it is all said and done. He goes through and shows the trouble that will come on various nations. And in the middle, he shows how God will begin to return to Ephraim once we return as a church to him. And he will again, as Isaiah says, have a remnant that he will work through. So then we get down toward the end of Jeremiah, and he's speaking almost exclusively, exclusively then of the nations of Israel, especially Ephraim. And there is some woven in there about the church itself, the daughter of Zion, the daughter of Jerusalem, intertwined with the prophecies that were coming down on our nation. Now, Isaiah 50 and 51 uh, pretty much summarize that whole thing where he shows that the northern army is going to come and the people of God, the church, will be fleeing ahead of it saying, how do I get to Zion? He shows there that what is happening in our country right now, I'll turn back and read a little bit of it, what is happening in our country right now was foretold by Jeremiah all the way back... 3,000 years ago. He says his people have been lost sheep in uh, chapter 50 and verse 6. And uh, then how our government in verse 15 will give her hand. And we have, our last several presidents, been selling out America to our enemies ahead of time. Making treaties with them and behind the scenes doing things that will help bring down our country to destruction. That has been going on for several presidents now. It doesn't matter which party they were in. And then it says in verse 17, it will become a scattered sheep. The lions will drive him away. The king of Assyria will devour him. Uh, And the head Babylonian, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian system that is Satan's system that is the world today, will come against us. Verse 22, A sound of battle is in the land and of great destruction. How is the hammer of the whole earth cut asunder? Who is the hammer of the whole earth right now? Who hammers on anybody they want to? Only the United States of America. It's been that way now for several decades. And it still exists. We're still doing it. And we're threatening to hammer on several right now. Iran, Syria, Korea, uh, even Venezuela is in the news lately. How I mean, We may even go in there with the military. Uh, this is us it's talking about. Ephraim, the United States, the end time great whore of Ezekiel 16 and Revelation 18. How will it be destroyed and become a desolation among the nations? God says he's laid a snare for us. And then it talks about, verse 28, the voice of them that flee and escape out of the land of Babylon to declare in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, the vengeance of His temple. So God is going to bring His remnant church out ahead of this destruction, just barely ahead of it. Now let's understand... Verse 6 of chapter 51. Flee out of the midst of Babylon and deliver every man his soul. Be not cut off in her iniquity. We came here because we understood this. We began to understand it first in Micah 4, where it says to leave the cities of Babylon, go dwell in the wilderness, even within Babylon, but out of the cities in the wilderness area of Babylon. That's why we're here. So he tells us, just before this destruction, on a greater level, 10% of the, what was the church will begin to flee out of Babylon and go into the wilderness near Zion where God will take care of them. And then it says Babylon in verse 8 will suddenly fall and be destroyed. And how we would have healed it, but we couldn't. Now let's move on over Uh, he reiterates this, uh, how trouble is coming out of the north, and my people, verse 45, go you out of the midst of her and deliver you every man his soul from the fierce anger of the eternal. So God is going to come down on this nation. Jeremiah makes it very clear. And then he says in 46, lest your heart faint and you fear for the rumor that shall be heard in the land, more and more people are beginning to fear now. They're beginning to realize that trouble is coming and coming soon. So he says, A rumor shall both come one year, and after that, in another year, shall come a rumor and violence in the land, ruler against ruler. Now, we began to have rumors of rulers against rumors in the last couple of years, haven't we? And there was a time in America when if anyone... Made any kind of a threat verbally against the President of the United States, he would have been locked up and the key thrown away. Now, in the last couple, three years, some of those threats are being made and nothing happens. We even have senators now who are calling not only for impeachment, but the death of the current sitting President. And nothing is being done about it, right? It's happening. And then violence in the land. Now, I'm going to say that I believe Donald Trump will be killed. I think the probability of that is very great. I'm not going to say it outright and make a, a total, uh, let's say, prediction of that. But I think the probability is quite high. Based upon Scripture. Now, Isaiah 1 says that there was lying and then murder. And I have a very strong feeling that Herbert Armstrong was murdered uh, based upon what the guards around the campus in his house said, based upon noises that were heard from that house that night, and based upon Isaiah 1 itself. Now, let's add to that the story of Gedaliah, which is in chapter 52. Of, uh, of Jeremiah, where Gedaliah was killed, uh, and he was, had been appointed the leader of Israel at that point, or of Judah, when uh, it went into captivity. Appointed by Babylon, actually. But Gedaliah was killed, and we just went through the fast of Gedaliah, and the fast of the fifth month. Now, he was killed. I believe the evidence is fairly clear that Herbert Armstrong may have been killed as well. So, spiritually, it may have occurred within the church. And how did Donald Trump get where he is today? There is a lot of confusion about that election and whether the Russians might have been involved and other people involved. And that's a huge topic right now in Washington, D.C., And there's speculation as to whether Donald Trump really is against the establishment and for America first. Or whether as a billionaire he's just one of them. And how the Russians uh, financed his empire and saved it a couple, three times. The crooks that took over Russia. So all of this is on the news right now as we speak. Now you can go to Hosea. And it says that Ephraim flies like a silly dove to the Assyrian for help. The rumors are that Trump has gone to the Assyrian, to Putin, for help. And was helped through the election. Is that true? I don't know. But there's the scripture. It also says that the King of the North there in Hosea is going to destroy us. So we go to them for help. And put, and uh, Trump apparently, even when Putin kicked all those diplomats out of Russia, uh, Trump apparently, according to the tweet uh, stories, has thanked him for it. <laughs> so he's looking to Putin and to the Russians to some degree, and maybe he thinks they're his only lifeline because I'm sure... At this point, he realizes there are an awful lot of people out to get him. So, if it is possible that the spiritual leader that God had set in the church may have been killed, and Trump may have been appointed as the President of the United States, uh, partially by the powers that be and even the Russians where he has gone like a silly dove for help in a time of trouble and need. And that's not where he's going to get help because I believe at this point that the Assyrian is the Russian power and it will be allied with China and the Muslims and many others as I, as Psalm 83 points out. So these prophecies here in Jeremiah are becoming very, very real. The prophecy in Hosea about our leader, going to the Assyrian for help is becoming very possibly very real. Now, I don't know exactly everything that has occurred. I know what's being reported by both uh, the mainstream Street media and the alternative media. And it all fits this picture pretty well. And it, uh, the breakout of World War III appears not to be very, very far away. So, as it gets near... Uh, people are going to begin to wake up and flee to Zion, as, I, as Jeremiah 50, 51, and 52 show, just ahead of the northern army. Then we have that prophecy in Amos 8, which I recounted not too long ago. I think I'll turn back there for a moment, because that kind of fits with some of the things that I've just been saying uh, Let's go to Amos 8. Now in 7, he talks about destruction coming uh, and how God will set a plumb line in the middle of Israel and show that it's not level, it's not on an even keel, it's way off balance and out of line. And in chapter 8 then, he says, Thus, considering these things, Thus says the eternal God, or showed to me, A basket of summer fruit. Now, we're in the summer here now. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And he said, A basket of summer fruit. The Eternal said to me, The end has come upon my people of Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. So, is the trouble going to begin? I'm not saying necessarily World War III and the total destruction. But is the trouble, the various types of trouble God is talking about, going to begin... begin at the end of the summer season when the summer fruits and vegetables basically the harvest of the summer is becoming complete because here's a basket of it. So the harvest has started and is well underway in other words because here's the basket of summer fruit. Uh, Is that the time of year when it's going to begin? Very, very possibly based on this. And the songs of the temple shall be howlings in that day, says the Eternal, and dead bodies in every place. Are we talking here about civil war and martial law? Uh, We read about rumors in the land and then violence ruler against ruler there in Jeremiah 51. And this looks like violence in the land and many dead bodies laying around. So these prophecies all dovetail and coincide, don't they? Hear this, you that swallow up the needy. Do we have the big corporations that are swallowing up people and destroying the middle class? Even to make the poor of the land to fail? And then it mentions the new moon being gone and the Sabbath that they can go whole hog trying to get wealthy. When will the new moon end? Uh, And that we can buy and sell the poor in verse 6 real cheaply. The eternal is sworn by the excellency of Jacob. Surely I will never forget any of their works. And then he says the land will tremble for this. It's going to create shock waves, earthquakes, if you will, in our society and culture. And every one mourn that dwells therein. Dead bodies laying around. Trouble coming. It shall rise up wholly as a flood. Flash floods happen very fast. And it says there in Revelation eighteen, Our destruction will come suddenly, in an hour, in a day, it says, very quickly. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Eternal, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day, and turn your fast or your feasts into mourning, and your songs into lamentation, sackcloth, and famine in the land, famine not just of bread, but of the word of God, and it will be snuffed out. Uh, people who are trying to preach the word of God today in the various breakoffs from Worldwide Church of God will not survive what we're talking about here. There'll be a total famine of the word. Uh, we find, on reading on down, that they'll go from east uh, sea to sea, and from the north into the east, and they will not find the word of the Eternal in those areas. So the northwest, the east, sea to sea. Pacific to Atlantic and down in the south they won't find it there's only one quadrant left there that it could proceed from and that's the southwest that's where Zion and Jerusalem are that's where Herbert Armstrong uh, did the end time work of the former temple was from the southwest Pasadena and this will come from a different area of the southwest but still from that area so uh, the churches are going to disappear Well, remember Revelation, I mean, uh, Zechariah 11? Three pastors cut off in one month, and the big trees cut down. The bigger churches that are left, the remnants of the church. On and on this goes. I think it's really interesting that we're coming upon the new moon on August 22nd, beginning of the sixth month. And here, he's talking about the new moon coming, and when's that going to be over so we can go ahead and complete... The the ransacking of the people and finish this thing off. The New World Order wants to control all the wealth that they can before this all comes down. And they're making a final push. Well, we've got the new moon coming up on the 22nd, and across America on the 21st we have a total eclipse just before the new moon. He says, I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. Is that a specific prophecy? I don't know, but we have just read here in this chapter that toward the end of the summer, when the fruits have been being harvested, that this trouble and destruction and death will begin to occur. And here's a new moon, uh, and it ha- it occurs right around noon, middle of the day, across the country as it moves across. I don't know whether that's specific or not, but we don't have long to find out. Now, this, this isn't necessarily speaking of the total day of the Lord here, but it's the beginning of the destruction that leads to that. And it could begin with some false flag event that uh, they create that will begin to cause civil war and destruction, and maybe even our president will be killed as they're threatening to do just as Gedaliah was, the physical ruler of the land, who may very well indeed have been placed in that office because these elections have been controlled by the New World Order and the people behind the scenes for a long time now. And I don't think Trump would have gotten in there without their approval on some level. Uh, They may have put him in there on purpose in order to blame all this on him when it does come down instead of their more fair-haired favorites that didn't get in there. Uh, And those who didn't get in may be the ones who are helping destroy, and that appears to be the case in the news as you read it today, that the Democrats and all those who side with them and some of the Republicans are in this plot to create a coup and take the president down. Now whether he physically dies and his power is destroyed or whether he is politically destroyed perhaps is a moot point. Uh, He will be removed seems to be the case. Whether physically or I mean whether through death or through physical removal otherwise impeachment or whatever uh, might not mean anything but the idea that destruction is coming is very, very real, and these scriptures seem to indicate it, and Amos may be even telling us certainly the time of year that it will occur, and let us not forget Roanoke in the 340, uh, 3, 430 years that this nation has existed since then, uh, and the 430 years in Egypt when they were in the captivity of Babylon, and this nation has been essentially in the captive of Babel, captivity of Babylon uh, ever since its inception. Those people who set up our government uh, were here, and they were Masons, and they were ungodly from the very beginning. God let us come here, uh, but we have been under the auspices of Satan's system our entire time here and we're about to go into a much greater captivity as the scriptures indicate and as events in the world are happening this very day and we will see that very soon now in the book of Ezekiel I didn't mention that a few weeks ago when I went through this but Ezekiel was laid on his right side for 390 days picturing years for Israel, and then 40 days for Judah, for a total of 430 days. God said each day for a year. And that is very much an end time prophecy, as we shall see. So again, the 430 comes up. I didn't think of it the other week when I was talking about this, but it's very much there, and I have notes in my uh, margin which indicate that that ties in with this. I just didn't think to say it. But we are now going to go into the book of Ezekiel, and I wanted to lay this background, an overview, of what all these prophecies are talking about uh, before going there. Uh, Even the book of Lamentations following Jeremiah and just before Ezekiel shows how the church would be absolutely devastated the daughter of Zion, the daughters of Zion, would be destroyed, and that God was behind it. He says, I did this to you. I did this. And how the law is gone. And the only hope is in God there toward the middle of chapter 3. And that we should hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the eternal in verse 26. And that He is good to those that wait on Him. So, he shows utter destruction, and that's why it is a lament or a lamentation. Uh, And then we get from there to the book of Ezekiel. There are things in the book of Ezekiel which I think uh, fit exactly where the church is, and even where this church is today. They fit it to a T. And that's why I want to go here and examine Ezekiel again. We went through it some years ago, but there were some things at the end that I did not feel prepared uh, really to comment on. Uh, I, I think I understand them better today, and we'll get to that. But it would not hurt us at all to review Ezekiel at this point And I think we can draw some of these prophecies down to a finer point than was heretofore possible because of events that have happened since I went through this some years ago. Ezekiel is a word, if you look it up, which means uh, one strengthened of God, or strength of God, or how God would give strength and power, is what... the word Ezekiel means. Ezekiel is only mentioned twice uh, in Scripture. Once right here at the beginning of Ezekiel and once, uh, I think, in chapter 6 or somewhere along there. Uh, Once again, he mentions his name. But after that, uh, even in this book, God would call him son of man uh, or some other term as opposed to by his given name. But we will see here, as we go in, that God promises Ezekiel that he will give him power and strength. Uh, We'll comment more on that when we get to that section. But the Hebrew name for Ezekiel means that very thing, and then God shows that he will do it. Now, let's understand the setting here, because it's important to understand what Ezekiel is saying in light of where we sit today. Uh, Jeremiah primarily wrote just before the Babylonian captivity, and then his message continued into that captivity. Uh, Ezekiel was began his message when they were already in captivity. Now, it's important to grasp that because everything that Ezekiel says has not necessarily to do with that time as much as it has to do with today. Now, some of the things that occurred within the captivity that they were in when he began to write did certainly apply to those people. And there's a case where Uh, One of them even died, and he commented on that, and then his wife died, and he commented on that, Uh, and it was for a reason. So, there are a lot of things that happened back then that have an end-time type. Those are just a couple of things that come to mind to show that some of the things Ezekiel talks about did occur in that day, even though they were already in captivity when he started writing. But that overall, the book has to be for now. And that the things that did happen in Ezekiel (coughs) were precursors to the final (coughs) fulfillment of all these things. And that's true throughout the prophecies. Even end-time prophecies of the church included, as we know, several different uh, fulfillments of different eras of the church. And... The prophecies themselves, all of them we've come to see, had to do with the former temple under Herbert Armstrong and the latter temple under the two witnesses. So there are lesser fulfillments and then greater and final fulfillments. So we find that here in the book of Ezekiel. Even sets the timing. It came to pass in the 30th year in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives. So we don't have to go to chronology or Jewish tradition. He says right here the captivity had occurred, and he was there among the captives by the river of Kibar. Uh, was that here in this area in the original Babylon, or was it in the Middle East? Or in the Babylon that came up there after the flood <coughs> when man began to reproduce in that second cradle of civilization in the Middle East. It doesn't say, and I'm not absolutely positive, uh, where Ezekiel was at this point because they had been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon and it might well have been at that point that they were taken overseas to that Babylon. I think that that may very well be the case. So he says in the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, now you'll recall that we tie this together with Ezekiel 40, verse 1, uh, combined with Christ's uh, acceptable year of the Lord, which he proclaimed to show that uh, it was a year of jubilee that he's talking about. I won't go into the detail of that. We've done it before, and you can look it up in some sermon somewhere on the website. Anyway, it says, "...the word of the Eternal came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzzai in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kebar." I think that's important to consider that this came expressly to Ezekiel. It didn't come to several people It didn't come to uh, the people as a whole. It came expressly to one man, to Ezekiel. Here is a message from God to Ezekiel. Now, there are a lot of people, and I think Ezekiel will attest to this later on, who say they've dreamed dreams and they've had visions, and you see on the alternative news all the time different pastors that have had dreams, Uh, and different people that have dreamed dreams. Now, Joel does say that in the end time, God's own people will begin to have some visions and dreams. And it will not just be expressly to uh, one person, but that quite a few people will dream about the events that are occurring or about to occur. But here it was expressly to Ezekiel, and we find other prophecies, uh, such as one in Isaiah, I believe it is, which says that God would speak to one, give that message to one, and he would speak of them, of the two. So uh, God would expressly give a message in the end time to one, not to a bunch. So this message came expressly through Ezekiel and Ezekiel only. God has done that in the past. So this isn't something about what was about to occur like Isaiah and Jeremiah talked about. This is something that came afterward that pertains then only to the end time. So he came expressly to him. And the hand of God was there upon him. So God was uh, personally involved. Now we'll read in Zechariah 2, we've been there many times, how Christ is going to come and dwell with us, that he will be here. This is before the the resurrection. This isn't millennial. The whole context of Zechariah 1 through 4 in Haggai is of the two witnesses and the remnant of the church, the 10% tithe that God is going to bring back of his people to reestablish and build the latter temple and he says during that period of time he is going to come and dwell with us so here uh, Christ was very much intimately and actively involved with Ezekiel at this point in this end time prophecy and that's what this is an end time prophecy That captivity was already there. He was a captive with them. So this had to be speaking of a future captivity, okay? Now we find Christ's hand was there with him. Now let's see, verse 4, "...and I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud." Now, why the north? Well, that's where destruction's coming from on the earth... Many, many scriptures talk about the Assyrian coming out of the north. But also, scripture talks about God whose dwelling is in the sides of the north. So, this is speaking of Christ having his hand on Ezekiel, and this whirlwind comes out of the north. That is where God's throne is. A great cloud... And the fire enfolding itself and a brightness was about it. Uh, How is Christ described in Revelation 1? In great glory and brightness and great light. (coughs) When you talk about the throne of God, you talk about uh, uh, great heat and light and the uh, rainbow and so on. (coughs) So... We'll see as we read on in the context that this is talking about Christ. We already see that His hand was on Ezekiel, and when He laid His hand on him and gave him an express message, here's the beginning of it. And it comes with great heat and light and power is how it begins to truly come once it comes in power. And when Christ stands... There in Zechariah, uh, and causes these things to happen, I suspect it's going to be pretty dramatic. We have Acts 2, which was quite dramatic tongues of fire and thunder and lightning and so on occurred when the Holy Spirit first came in power. So I think God has shown that in the past, it will probably not come in exactly the same way as it did in Acts 2, but the same thing will happen. There will be drama. It will be powerful. It will be such that there will be signs and wonders, go back to Zechariah 3, that will show (coughs) all seven churches that Christ the Rock is in charge, as mentioned in Zechariah 3. So all these fit together, and God did it here in a very dramatic fashion. The color of amber out of the midst of the fire. And out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures. So this is done with great fan power, fan. What's the word I'm trying to use? Uh, (laughs) Fanfare. Shown with great drama, heat and light and clouds, and in the middle of it, four living creatures. And this was their appearance, and they had the likeness of a man. So it was similar to a man, and yet it was different. Living creatures, it's called. Created beings, if you will. Now, the angels are not like us. We are in the exact image of God, at least the male is. Female is very similar, but not exact, because God is a male. But here we have four living creatures, and we'll see them described, just as we can go to other scriptures and see angels described, and how some of them have wings and they have different various characteristics. And the angels, I think, can be equated pretty closely to domestic animals that we have here on the earth, that the goats and sheep and cattle and dogs and cats and so on that we have as pets and as farm animals are to us very much like the angels are to God. The angels, of course, are on a far, far, far higher level than our domestic animals, but they are the servants, uh, the joy, the fun, the help to God that the animals are to us. So I think that there is very much a similarity there. So, we ourselves are not anywhere near on the level of God himself. Now, we will be, but we're not there today, and the, and the animals are not anywhere near on the same level as the angels and the 24 elders and so on are. But there is a resemblance, there is a type there. And the, these fit that description. <clears throat> we'll see as we go on. Everyone had four faces and everyone had four wings. So they weren't quite like birds, but they had more wings than the birds we know. Uh, So it shows a pattern here of the Creator. God has created spirit creations which show the same mind as the physical creations we see around us. We have physical creation that has wings and has various faces, And here he does tie it together. Uh, It'll show here as we get down that they had four faces that are similar to the beasts that we see around us. So the analogy of the angels being to God, what the animals are to us, I think is very much expressed here. Everyone had four faces, everyone had four wings, their feet, they had feet were straight feet and the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot. So not like the bottom of your foot, but more like uh, that of a, a farm animal. Whether it was cloven or not, says they were straight, does that mean that they weren't curved or does it mean they weren't cloven like a cow and yet the bottom was similar to a that of a cow as opposed to a human? I don't know. Uh, he doesn't give every little detail here but that the analogy is close enough that we can tie it to what we understand uh, on a much greater spiritual level is what was being shown to Ezekiel. They sparkled like the color of shined brass. so they sparkled and shone they were brilliant. They had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides. So they had four wings. That means they may have had even four sets of hands up underneath the wings. I've, I've seen pictures of people where people have gone into great detail trying to draw this. When I was in the uh, mail receiving department in Pasadena in college, we'd get these huge charts that people would send in people that weren't in the churches yet, but they would try to draw all these things in the book of Revelation and here in Ezekiel. And uh, they were quite elaborate and quite impressive, but you had no idea whether they were quite like this because it was just their imagination in trying to put together what this is saying. So God leaves a lot of room here for imagination, and yet He gives us a certain amount of detail. To us, never having seen, having seen anything like this, it would be quite fearful, I think. The four had their faces and their wings. Their wings were joined one to another. Uh, well, a bird's wings are kind of almost joined at the top of their backbone, and I don't know what this exactly means. But they turned not when they went. Uh, if you've noticed, birds will fly in kind of a pattern where they kind of zigzag back and forth. These did. They went in an absolute straight pattern or straight path. If you see a cow's trail or an elk trail, it goes back and forth. It zigs and it zags as they walk. There's, they don't make straight trails. So, But these do they go straight point to point. They went everyone straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man, the face of a lion on the right side, and they four had the face of an ox on the left side, and also the face of an eagle. So apparently, a face of a man on one side, then a lion, an ox, and an eagle on the other three sides. I don't know whether they were square-headed or not, but... uh, Whether it was round and had a face pointing each direction, who knows? But those different faces were there. Thus were their faces, and their wings were stretched upward. So the wings held in an upward position. Two wings of every one were joined one to another, and two covered their bodies. So two wings apparently up, joined together, and then two... That were still hanging down and covering their bodies. A bird either covers their body with their wings or they have them up in the air, but not both. So, this is different than the birds we know. And they went, everyone, straight forward, says it again. Are we supposed to go forward or backward? Are we supposed to live in the past or in the future? Are we supposed to go forward, as God told them at the Red Sea? Go forward. See the salvation of the eternal. That's what we need. That is should be our direction right now. Not thinking of the past, not dwelling on the present, but looking forward. And this message gets across to us here in an end-time prophecy of things that are about to occur. <coughs> so they went straight. Where the Spirit was to go, they went, and they turned not when they went. Now, does God tell us to follow Him everywhere He goes, to walk in the footsteps of Christ, to think the very thoughts of Christ? Now, these beings that He's describing here were in perfect harmony with the leader, as we shall see as we go on. They went exactly where he wanted them to go. Did exactly what he wanted done. We are supposed to do exactly what he wants done and to have a spirit and attitude to serve God in the way that he wants to be served. They didn't vary. They didn't wander back and forth. I think it's a very important point. They went straight ahead. Wherever he said go, they went. If they said leave Babylon and go, they went. Uh, You know, we're to do everything God says to do. We have people out in the world and in the church who are now fleeing the United States, as it says there in Jeremiah, that they would do. They see the trouble coming, and they go back where they came from. Now, we still have people coming into this country at this point. But very shortly now, when this trouble breaks out, they're going to turn tail and go right back where they came from. And that is already beginning to happen in some cases. People are saying, this isn't what I thought it was, I'm going home. So they're going back to Mexico and Guatemala and wherever they came from. And that is going to become a flood, just as Jeremiah predicts, very shortly now. Now, he says, those who would seek God will come saying, how do I get to Zion? Because God is going to do some things at Zion, in the area of Zion, that will catch their attention. There will be signs and wonders, Zechariah 3 says, "that, that will cause him to say, I need to go to Zion. And they won't even know where it is. They're going to say, how do I get to Zion? I've heard these things. Maybe they're in Africa or Asia or Europe. Uh, there are a lot of Americans who don't even know where Zion is. And the true original Zion that God speaks of, that is, we're in the area of, right here, the church doesn't even know of. They're going to say, which Zion? What are you talking about? Better do what God says, because 90% are going to be left behind, and they will go into the tribulation, and there they will die. Anyway, they did His will. They did whatever He wanted. Verse 13, As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire. They shone and bright. You've looked at a fire that's gone down, and the flames may be gone, but the coals are still shining brightly and and flickering. They're that live. And like the appearance of lamps or bright light, It went up and down among the living creatures, and the fire was bright. And out of the fire went forth lightning, like coals of fire, and lightning coming out. This would be quite a spectacle. I suspect Ezekiel was pretty impressed. The living creatures ran and returned as the appearance of a flash of lightning. How fast do you watch lightning go across the sky? You barely see it, and it's already gone. And it can go across the whole sky in some cases in a flash, and it's done. These creatures were able to travel at the speed of lightning. That's a lot faster than the speed of sound. It's, I suspect, a lot faster than the speed of light, that light normally travels, but as lightning Christ can travel through the universe at the speed of lightning, whatever that is. Maybe even faster than that. But that's the nearest thing that you and I have to judge about how fast this thing could move. It's compared to lightning. And I can think of nothing faster than lightning. It's an expression we use. Man, it, it just it came on just like lightning, we say. Can't get faster than that. Well, maybe these go faster than that. But in our realm, and our understanding, this is as fast as it gets. Now, as I beheld the living creatures, behold one wheel upon the earth by the living creatures with his four faces. So not only did they have wings and the appearance of a man's body, but they also had wheels and feet. It's hard to picture exactly what this is. The appearance of the wheels and their work was like the color of barrel. Uh, that could have been aquamarine, topaz, brilliant blue light, greenish blue light, maybe. And they four had one likeness. They looked alike, and their appearance and their work was that were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. So, holy of holies, a circle within a circle. Uh, God uses the Holy of Holies that way. And it is depicted that way in the petroglyphs around here. That the Holy of Holies is a wheel within a wheel. (laughs) Here you got it. And when they went, they went upon their four sides, and they turned not when they went. How do you go on four sides? Did it rotate as it went? Uh, But it went straight and turned not. As for their rings, they were so high that they were dreadful. So he looked up, and the rings that emanated from this creature were so high that it was scary. Their ring- rings were full of eyes round about them four. So they had this these huge rings that went up very high, and they had eyes within them. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went by them, or with them. By them, I don't know what that means. But the whole thing moved together in sequence, in coordination, and it all moved at once. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. So it landed on the earth. We're going to see Christ come. He's going to dwell on the earth with us, Zechariah 2 and other scriptures before he comes back in glory. Now, we will see this same description, a little different, a little later on in the book of Ezekiel. And in that particular case, we're going to find that Ezekiel was lifted up and carried with it. Here, that does not occur in chapter 1. But I think there's a great significance, perhaps, to that. We'll get to that when we get to it. <clears throat> anyway verse 20 wherever the spirit was to go they went they went there with their spirit to go and the wheels were lifted up over against them for the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels now this living creature we're going to find out is Christ so he was in the middle of it now his throne in heaven is surrounded by lightning and thunder and great light and the twenty-four elders, the sea of glass, of the angels round about and so on. That is a huge uh, area. This is much smaller. It could land on the earth. I think what we're seeing here is a portable throne that Christ travels in. Uh, it's, It's how He would appear, how He appeared to Ezekiel and probably how he is going to appear again uh, in the time of the two witnesses and the 10% remnant. Why is it here? Why is this end-time prophecy and fulfillment written in this way if it doesn't tie in with Zechariah 2? Because it is indeed an end-time prophecy, as we shall see. The context of Ezekiel makes that very, very clear. Verse 22, and the light, I'm going to finish this chapter. Uh, I've got a few minutes here. It's okay, don't worry about it. The lightness of the firmament upon the heads of the living creature was as the color of the terrible crystal. So this shone and, and was kind of see through or transparent like crystal, as well as having all this color and shining brass. Must have been an incredible spectacle. Under the firmament were their wings straight, the one toward the other. Everyone had two which covered on this side, and everyone had two which covered on that side their bodies. So it talked about two wings, I think, before that covered their bodies. And here we have two on each side. God can put as many wings on something as He wants. And when they went, I heard the noise of their wings like the noise of great waters. As the voice of the Almighty. Now that's described as thunder in Revelation 1. The voice of Christ, like the sound of many waters. Great waters, as it says here. The voice of speech. So it wasn't just a roar, but it was a very, very loud voice of speech. Intelligible. As the noise of a host, like a whole bunch of people talking at once. Or many waters. When they stood, they let down their wings. So when they flew, the wings came up, apparently. And when they stood, or landed, the wings came down. And there was a voice from the firmament that was over their heads when they stood and had let down their wings. So this voice appeared to come from the top. Well, Christ is the head. He's the top. And above the firmament that was over their heads the likeness of a throne. So the voice came from the top, and at the top there was the likeness of a throne. Is this a portable throne that Christ travels on? Let's read on. As the appearance of a sapphire stone, brilliant blue, with all of this light shining through it. It's blue, it's purple the color of royalty. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above upon it. So here, above all this panorama that was below, was the appearance of a throne like the royal colors of Christ and the appearance of a man. Now Christ is in the shape of a man. He has feet and hands and face that's described in Revelation. How his face shines like fire. His voice is many waters. So, the description here is of a spiritual, powerful being, just like Revelation 1 describes. And it sounds almost like John read Ezekiel before he described Christ in Revelation 1. But he saw it in a vision, just as Ezekiel was seeing this. Uh, it doesn't say in a vision here. It just shows that this thing came. (laughs) It was there. Not just a vision or a, a movie about it. It was there. John saw it in vision. Saw Christ in vision. Here he may have actually seen this thing occur. And I saw as the color of amber, as the appearance of fire round about within it, From the appearance of His loins even upward. And how does it describe Christ's loins and His legs in Revelation 1? Just like this. And from the appearance of His loins even downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and it had brightness round about. I'm going to thumb back there just for a moment to Revelation 1. You see, this is talking about the end time It's talking about the things that John was going to see that would reveal end-time events. And it starts with Christ. Just as the message starts in Ezekiel with Christ. Verse 10, "...I was in the Spirit on the day of the Lord." When these things begin to happen at the end time. And here is Christ being sent to the seven churches, the seven golden candlesticks... And he was girt about uh, with a golden girdle, hair like wool, white as snow, his eyes as a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass, as if they burned in the furnace, and his voice as many waters, which we just read, his legs shining like lightning, and seven stars and a two-edged sword, and his face shined like the sun in full strength kind of like what we're reading, isn't it? The Bible ties together story to story to story. Anyway, uh, verse 28 of Ezekiel 1, "...as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain." Here's the rainbow, just like at God's throne. "...so is the appearance of the brightness round about." This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So I think he shows that the being that was above and shone in that blue sapphire light was Christ himself. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. Now every man who ever saw Christ appear or was on holy ground like Moses in the burning bush would fall on their face. Under the influence of Satan, people always fell over on their back. Here was the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one that spoke. So Christ appears in glory in this great portable throne and vehicle to Ezekiel. Now, there is the start of the end-time prophecies as Ezekiel saw it, just as John saw it in vision in Revelation 1. So, we're talking about, right now, this the events that we're heading into at this moment are being described just like they are in Revelation 1. So, let's understand where Ezekiel was being taken in a prophetic sense and know where we are. Uh, and as we get into this, we will see detail that will just almost curl your hair as to what is going on. So let's stop in there for today.